Good morning, and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. I'm John Burtzall. Good morning, Kirk. Good morning. Um, hey, it's been quite a week with the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. <laughs> it's uh, all Kyle all the, con- all the time. All Kyle all the time. I um, tell you. I, I want to talk about a couple things. I know you and I have both been following it, and... Um, you know, they're, they're kind of tapping both of us, I think, to provide ongoing commentary. I think you have a, a time slot coming up on Monday, if I'm not mistaken, where you'll court be TV, on court, yep. court TV. Yep. Uh, there was an article earlier this week in the New York Times quoting me, and there was also an ABC News piece that I think you saw. Um, uh, you know, I hate I not see the new. I did not see the New York Times one. Yeah, it came out earlier. Um, they just have me quoting something about, uh, you know, uh, the reasonableness of one's state of mind and how difficult that is to define. So uh, first I want to talk about uh, something that we did kind of get into last week, and that has to do with uh, Judge Schrader's um, ruling on whether or not the state can refer to the complaining witnesses, as it were, uh, as victims as well as uh, some other media coverage that caught Judge Schrader's ire. And uh, it was a, on a break when the jury was out on a, on a, you know, they weren't in the courtroom, but the judge took advantage of the opportunity to uh, comment on a lot of the criticism that's been lofted at him for his ruling. Um, about that particular ruling. And that particular ruling. And also just the misinterpretation that went into the media about uh, this whole looters, rioters, arsonists thing. And as we discussed last week, his ruling was, hey, if the defendant thinks that he can uh, demonstrate that belief, that sig- signaling that it would, he would let it in if that's what he testified to, if he took the stand. So, I mean, I don't think that was a controversial ruling at all because people can talk about what they believe, what their thought process was anytime. But you saw... And Judge Schrader didn't didn't uh, fail to notice that there was commentary all over the country and all over the world about this shock and dismay about not being able to use the word victim. And you know, he correctly pointed out it's the law, and the, you know, that's actually <laughs> a choice on how to view that. And really, people are going nuts about this issue because well, they're going nuts because. It's there seems to be in this kind of woke environment um, a desire to always view yourself as a victim, um, whether it's political oppression or, you know, an actual crime of some sort or, you know, it's like and I've always been amused by people who have a victim mentality. And um, I and I think that it's much more pervasive now, which is why. And plus we have this Marcy's law, mm-hmm. which of course is an actual constitutional amendment to the Wisconsin constitution about victims rights, which if you read sub six, uh, subsection six of that law, uh, it specifically says that it does not trump any um, uh, rights of a defendant, but, right. but that's that a conflict with everything else that's in the constitution. But that said, the overall, I guess, gestalt of a lot of people is that, you know, um, victims 
are, to just use the term legally, victims are, um, you know, deserving of, I guess, quote, equal treatment or, you know, some honorific, um, you know, uh, up on a pedestal treatment. And, um, and as the judge pointed out, that's just not the law. You, you aren't a legally a victim until there's been a conviction. Right. And, and I think part of the confusion also is that that word can be used in different contexts. I mean, I could say that, you know, it's many people have been victims of COVID over the past, you know, two years. Right. And that that yeah. doesn't mean that we're going to go out and, you know, prosecute COVID for killing people. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there, there's the everyday usage of that word, but there's a specific legal context that someone is only a victim of a crime when a crime has been committed. How do you determine if a crime has been committed or not? You have a trial. That's what you do. So, you know, it, the judge's ruling is the same ruling that you and I ask every judge to make in every case. And by and large, with, if you make the argument the right way, the judge is going to agree. And as we said last week, Judge Schrader is no fool. He knows that uh, he doesn't want to create an appellate issue uh, on and something like this that really isn't consequential at all on the outcome of the case. And when, you know, the defense, we always say sometimes if it's a tie, sometimes you just got to, you know, bow in favor of what the defense is asking for if it's reasonable. Um, yeah. so, so that's it's not the, at all. It's <laughs> the same. It, it's the same. It's the same concept as when you're arguing in front of an appellate court. And I realize this might be a little inside baseball, but if you're looking at a statute, and you're trying to, a judge is trying to interpret it, um, and it seems to have an ambiguous meaning, there's something called the rule of lenity, which says that, uh, I mean, just in parlance, uh, tie goes to the runner, right? You know right. I mean? Right. You, the, That's if pretty you, much exactly what that rule says, that if, it's, if it could be interpreted two different ways, the way in favor of the defendant is the preferred interpretation. And, and that's essentially what we've constructed in terms of the presumption of innocence, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, um, even the jury instruction about burden of proof uh, that you give the benefit of every reasonable doubt to a defendant. Um, that's right. what jurors are instructed in every single case in Wisconsin. It's been our and law since we've had law. Although, although at the end of that, as you know, there is a, a, uh, a, a much um, chagrined uh, uh ending to that instruction, which says, um, while you're to give the defendant ever the benefit of every reasonable doubt, you're not to search for a doubt, you're to search for the truth. And I've always Very maintained, yeah, I've, I've always maintained that that right kind of flips the script and, and really places the burden on a defendant. And, um, I've argued that for years and years and years, it recently went up to the court of appeals on a case uh, and, uh, of course, uh, it was upheld, uh, but you know, I, I don't know that that's, that one's, that one's always bothered me. It does. And, and really the two parts of it that are troubling is that you're not to search for doubt. Okay. Well, how do you go through the process of discussing reasonable doubt? If you don't, you yeah. know, what is search? Are you, are you are supposed you, to stumble over it? Yeah. Are you supposed to <laughs> just wait for it to drop out of the sky? Mm -hmm. But yeah, searching, Telling somebody don't search for doubt. Well, aren't you supposed to search in your mind about how you feel about the case, your impressions of things that really kind of steers people in the wrong direction. And then you add to that this whole comment. 
you are to search for the truth. Well, I mean, first of all, that should go without saying that this is about every case is about what happened. And if the jury believes that the state has proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt for each and every element, then they can conclude that that is, quote unquote, the truth that's been proven by the prosecution. But I think it invites jurors to act on their hunches or their suspicions a lot more than applying the burden of proof properly. So if you were to say, search for, well, you know, I, I've actually talked to jurors and I said, well, we're supposed to search for the truth. And when I looked deep in my heart, I just felt that this person, <laughs> you know, that, and, and they think that's what they're being asked to do. And there's all these other instructions that say, don't do that. But getting back to this whole victim issue, uh, if Kyle Rittenhouse is uh, successful in defending himself, we already know this is a case about self-defense. Self-defense is an absolute defense. And if the, he, you know, if the prosecution can't disprove his actions as being reasonable in light of what he would have uh, perceived under the circumstances, he, he's not guilty, not only because the, the law said so, because under the law, he was entitled to use that force, which means there is no victim in that sense. Okay. Now, but people are like, how can you not have a victim if people are dead? Well, that's just kind of sim simplifying it way too much. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I know you've been following the case. I've, I've been following it intensely. And, and um, I think what we should do maybe in the next segment is to examine the law of self-defense and how it's being applied or how it could be applied in this case. And maybe we can conclude and perhaps agree. I don't know. I'll, I'll just make a statement. You've been watching the trial too, that the district attorney that's prosecuting this case, the, the lead, Mr. Binger, mm -hmm. um, I, I would vote for him as the best criminal defense attorney in the <laughs> County of Kenosha. All right. so you, you, you can offer your opinion about it. I will perhaps in the next segment. All right. Well, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. And we are back with more legal defense. And basically, we should, for the the time this trial's on, just this is the Kyle Rittenhouse show. Yeah. Brought to you by whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we should have let some of the Gun, Guns and Ammo magazine, maybe. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, <laughs> all right. So we are going to talk about how the law of self-defense is playing out in this case. And I think everyone's relatively familiar with the facts that have been, well, I mean, we've got the criminal complaint. We've seen how some of the evidence has come out so far this week. And uh, I think the, the rumor is anyway, that starting Monday, we're going to hear from uh, Mr. Rosenbaum, the guy that was shot, but didn't die. Is that right? Um, that's what I'm hearing. But uh, as we know, there's, there's really, Two angles on this. No, and Rosenbaum is the first guy that got shot and did die. Oh, that's right. Okay, gotcha. Well, anyway, um, the they're going to start with testimony of the actual, uh, you know, victim. I guess there's only one left. But anyway, um, the laying out the facts. I mean, what you hear people that are uh, trying to summarize what Mr. Binger has laid out. And I, I want to come back a little bit later and get your impressions of the opening statements. But uh, essentially, it's been a process whereby the 
um, a kid who's underage transport goes across state lines, goes to um, Kenosha, where everybody knows there's rioting and such going on or protests going on. And both. as things are asked, both, both happening really. To be fair. Time, to be fair. And then, um, you know, with an AR-15, and there's quite a bit of speculation on, how, you know, how well trained was he in using such a weapon? I know that there had been some pictures on social media and stuff. Uh, but, you know, obviously he wants to go there to be kind of a gun guy in the context of everything that's going on, right? Hey, I'm here with a supposedly exercising one's right to possess a firearm in such a context. It turns out that he wasn't legally um, capable under the law of possessing that firearm. But I'm sure you know this, John. Uh, it was a misdemeanor that he's uh, charged. Yeah, that's correct. And it's not a felony. Um, so he's also charged with, uh, you know, violating the curfew. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of people I mean, have asked me the question, hey, you know, is does that eliminate his self-defense claim? The fact that he was breaking two laws as uh, just based on his presence alone. Well, this is this is really kind of uh, cutting to a question that I was debating yesterday with some lawyers in our office, um, which is there's two scenarios, uh, factual scenarios that I think need to be examined. One is the actual interaction between Rittenhouse. And at first Rosenbaum and then the other two individuals later down on Sheridan Road, those actual interactions and the mechanics of where their bodies are and what they were saying and doing and where the gun is, those are factual things that you can examine in terms of reasonableness or fear or like you had an actual fear of death or whatever. But the other thing is, just what you were alluding to, which is he, this wasn't a situation where, you know, he was defending himself because he was walking past a dark alley and he got jumped or he was in a bar and some drunk guy came up to him and was like, um, just provoked a fight. He placed himself into this situation, um, which he, he did so very consciously and very intentionally. Um, and he brought with him, a really military military style weapon um, and was parading around with it rather, um, you know, conspicuously with a bunch of other people doing the same thing, all under the guise of being a quote medic. And, um, and so the question that I pose and I'll pose to you too, is does that, provocation, I'll just use that term, um, play into whether or not he can say, I reasonably feared for my life when, you know, I had an unarmed man charging me um, and I get to shoot him four times. Mm -hmm. it, because, because he placed himself in there, does that play into his ability to claim I, I was reasonably in fear of my life? Well, it does because – the law on self-defense, um, if there is the possibility that's raised by the evidence that the defendant himself engaged in exactly what you just said, 
legally speaking, uh, the provocation of the um, incidents which led him to be in a situation where he felt presumably that he needed to defend himself. Well, what the law says that one who engages in provocation can lose the privilege of self-defense. However, and this is where the duty to attempt retreat comes into play. Um, as I've said, said last week, this is like a law school exam question where you'd have to go through um, how things work. But let's just say in the presence of provocation, let's say his very being there with uh, assault style military weapon uh, under the circumstances where, you know, it, it was, it's foreseeable that that would create a stirrup, you know, and, and with everything going on, which by the way, you said, you know, he shouldn't have been there. Well, basically everybody involved after what was it? 8 PM shouldn't have been there under the law. Well, <laughs> strictly you know, legal matter. That's true. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, well, yeah. And if the, if uh, a peaceful orderly society is what uh, everybody has in mind and there is a curfew to try and stop stuff like this from happening, well, everybody then has a duty to go inside. Right. Um, anyway, so including him, including everybody else that is on the streets, lighting fires and doing all this other stuff. So, but let's get back to the provocation. Let's say, and I do believe this is going to be Binger's argument that his actions, his presence, his overt display of an assault weapon is something that legally speaking could be considered provocation, which means you you can lose that privilege to engage in self-defense, but you can regain it. Correct. That's the tricky part. You can regain it if you can demonstrate that you made an effort to retreat and that you had exhausted all reasonable efforts to engage in retreat. So this is like the classic thing. Are you is your back against the wall when you're facing the situation and you have no recourse or you have no ability to um, de-escalate the situation? There's also language that talks about there needs to be an attempt to um, an overt give, uh, give notice, give notice that you are no yeah. longer, <laughs> you know, provoking the situation, which again, this is kind of, this is, I think what the law, you know, the most clear example of provocation is, you know, think about a bar fight. Uh, somebody walks up to a dude, smashes a, you know, a bottle over his head, which starts the fight. Okay. That's like your classic example. Um, but if after that someone says, oh, 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 no, no, I'm sorry. Let's just deescalate this right now. I'm really, really sorry, dude. Yeah, my apologies. You know, no, no harm. No, <laughs> no worries. I got gotcha. you. You know, really sorry, man. And then the guy comes after you with, a, you know, use, utilizing force that is reasonably perceived to be necessary to prevent loss of life or great bodily harm. Then you can defend yourself. But, you know, that's a bit. It's kind of the simplistic way of looking at it. This is much more complicated because the provocation, if it's there, is more of a, uh, you know, a thematic sort of uh, notion. Right. So I, mean, I, I think, yes, the all everything you did a very nice job of laying out cool. in, in, I think, um, uh, pretty uh, coherent terms, what the law, both of self-defense is and the provocation aspect of the statute. And I think when we come back, maybe we try and like pick apart some of the 
the factual things that are currently in evidence. We don't know, you know, we don't know what's coming up next week, but what's currently coming up, what's currently been in this week has been fascinating. And I think um, just on a, on a global view, pretty much in the defense's favor. Mm -hmm. So far, I would agree. All right. We are going to take a break and we'll be back right after these messages. We're back, and you all probably don't know this uh, unless you've been a serious, serious fan of this show and you listen intently over the years. But I thought um, that was everybody. That is everybody, but okay. you know, if I'm, I'm gonna, the reason I'm mentioning this is that you would probably have to be tuning in year after year at a particular time of year to be aware of what I'm t- about to talk about, and that is that John Birdsall has a a, a, a very um, passionate love of the Christmas season. And he pointed out to me last week that it's November 1st. And I said, yeah. And what does that mean? And he's like, time to start decorating. (laughs) And uh, so during the break, when we were listening to those commercials, John, I am not apologizing for any of this, by the way, he wanted to make sure that my Christmas decorations and in the, because I spend most of my time in the Sheboygan office, John spends most of his time in the Milwaukee office, but we go back and forth, of course, because we're all one law firm and spend a lot of time together. So he's announced that he's going to conduct an inspection of uh, the appropriate uh, jolliness, I guess, of our yes. of the Sheboygan office's the- decorations, and we're hoping that we pass that. But just a little insider uh, information here. I- I've collected, you know, I think they're – unusual ornaments over the years, but they're all like rock music oriented. So I've got, yeah, I like, think those have been given the thumbs down by the oh, staff. Of the Sheboygan office. Yeah. I've got like Beatles. I'm just, ones, I'm Rolling not Stones. judging them. I haven't seen them. So I've got Gene Simmons, you know, uh, all kinds of cool. The great. <laughs> this is that. Gene Simmons and St. Nick are not really, well, um, you know. I don't know parallels, but um, so one, one particular person in their office, I won't name the person, except for the fact that her name is Maria um, <laughs> very much dislikes Elvis for some reason. And I oh. do have some Elvis ornaments and she freaked out when well, she heard them, you know, you don't want to create a hostile work environment. No, not at all. By <laughs> introducing Elvis. Elvis when it's clearly antagonistic to this one individual. Right. So be sensitive. I, I'll watch it then. Okay. All right. But, um, you're you want to get into how the trial's gone so far, the presentation yeah. of evidence and so um first of all, I made a comment before about how <laughs> Mr. Binger, the district attorney, is the best criminal defense lawyer in Kenosha County. And I'll tell you that when I watched the opening statements, um and heard him try and lay this out. I started to think myself, and this feeling continued all this week with every witness. I was trying to figure out which side is he on? (laughs) Because um, everything that he seems to be bringing out seems to be like um, on a silver platter, handing up the defense great facts. For Mm -hmm. example, um, you know, the whole... um, Reason why he was there, he's talking about he's he's like even even the state's witnesses are talking about you know uh, Rittenhouse as a medic and he's there you know altruistic purposes and um, and then this encounter with Rosenbaum, which is um, the first 
uh, encounter, which, you know, um, and how, how all of that took place um, in, this, in this crowded car lot down on Sheridan Road in the city of Kenosha. Um, and there was close quarters and it was hard to get away. And, and um, the, the, the reporter, I don't know if you remember this, McGinnis, the, uh, the reporter for this conservative online newspaper um, who was there um, and uh, witnessed the whole thing, went through this whole thing about how, and he even talked about this on Tucker Carlson's show. And he works, the, 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 the news organization he works for is owned and created by Tucker Carlson. So he, he literally talks about how um, Rosenbaum, who was a little on the crazed side, apparently, charges at Rittenhouse and tries to take his gun away. And, um, and he was trying to, he, he, he really could have treated him as a hostile witness. So like, I was like, I'm sorry, did the state call this guy or did the defense? Because he sounds like everything he says sounds like he's perfect for the defense. And it sounds like, you know, that um, uh, a crazy guy is yelling F you and charging and trying to grab his gun. And and they had this extended, if you, I don't know if you saw this part, but they had this extended um, debate between Binger and this journalist, uh, McGinnis, uh, over whether or not he said to the police that the that Rosenbaum was quote falling or quote lunging because he testified that he was lunging, which mm-hmm. of course sounds more like an aggressive manner, mm-hmm. and he had told the police falling, and he used the term falling on the Tucker Carlson interview, which was three days after the incident, and so they went back and forth, and he was impeaching his own witness. Yeah, right, right, and and and. It, it went on and on and on like that about the close quarters and where they were. And, and, um, uh, uh well, I got the impression that this had been a fairly recent, as in uh, all of a sudden, uh, change in terminology. You know, I'm not sure if that's true, but you know, I, when that, it was, has that happened, it kind of made Twitter it headlines. Just a, it was just a really bad look for the state. A sure, really sure. bad look. But and, okay. Let me just counterpoint you here a little bit. All right. Um, you know, this applies regardless of whether you're the prosecution or the defense. But in this case, I, I don't think it's necessarily bad decision making to front your what you know are weaknesses in the case or questions that you know are going to be difficult for the jury to address. That's all on the basis. And again, a lot of times it depends on the personalities of the the litigants, you know, the, I mean, the lawyers that are involved in the situation, but, you know, both sides should have a goal of coming across as sincere and that their positions are justified by the evidence and not wanting to, it's just, you know, this is part of the school of thought that it's bad strategy to ignore bad facts and that you, you know, the the reason we have a trial is because there is a controversy over, you know, what the right outcome is. All the state is trying to do is present it in terms of a theory and and why they believe that it fits, but ultimately leaving it up to the jury. So, you know, that's one of those things they teach in various trial advocacy courses in schools is that if you have, you know, a bad 
something that is bothering you about the case. I mean, this is kind of the Jerry Spence method when he says something's been bothering me all along when I look at this case. And I just can't get past the fact that it looks bad because of this particular reason. And I thought and thought and thought about well, it. You're, you're right and, that you do need to tackle tough facts. There's, there's, yeah. I mean, there's, there's certain things that you know are going to come up. Mm-hmm. And if you just ignore them, you're going to look like an idiot. Right. So you have to address them. But well, and if you're, I mean, isn't there a saying too that, you know, if you're going to be representing, a, you know, either the defendant or the interests of the state, you not only do you have to be sincere, but you, you have to be believable and you well, have to credibility. No credibility. So if you <laughs> appear to be having a firm belief in something, but you kind of, it looks like you overlooked some facts that are not in your favor, then you look like you're making it up as you go along, you know? Yeah. So I, I think so, that that's just something that this whole this whole let's just talk about this whole lunging thing. Let's just we'll just use McGinnis's term, okay, and and just assume that that is accurate um, because I I have to say that he did come across as fairly credible, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, um, like like he was sort of just the facts, ma'am, um, approach. Uh, and he was very level. It wasn't like an excited sort of like, um, what you might expect from Tucker Carlson, for example. <laughs> but, um, uh, so let's just say, you know, and again, this gets back to uh, ignoring the whole swirling of chaos around these two individuals, but there's, there's Rittenhouse. They're in this parking lot. Um, it's a, it's a car dealership. Uh, and it's, it wasn't clear to me entirely why, um, you know, the timing between Rittenhouse going there, but I know that they, they were, there was multiple car dealerships all owned by the same person. So I believe he was going there to protect this particular one because the other one got burned the day before, like burned to the ground. Right. And, um, and so, uh, this Rosenbaum then, let's just say he's lunging at him. Even a crazy man lunging at you. Um, and you're out in the open uh, and you are armed, um, even at close quarters and you are armed with a military weapon. Uh, do you have a reasonable fear for your life at that point? Well, that's a good question, but um, we got to take a break right now. And we can have well, that. I want an answer. Well, I will give it to you after <laughs> these commercial messages. So we'll be right All right. Back. We are back. And my partner, right. Kirk Bear. Yeah, I'm not being evasive here. No, put, put me on the spot. That's fine. <laughs> so your question, sir. My question was and is, again, ignoring the chaos around these individuals, if a crazy man is lunging at you, and yet you are armed with a military weapon, an operational <laughs> military weapon. Um, do you honestly have a fear, for, even if that person appears to be like going for your gun and trying to take it away from you? Do you honestly have a fear for your life from that person? Right. That, that's that's the ultimate question, and I think that's the probably the biggest question in the case. As you know, the second video that occurs. Um, it, it, it really does look like he's 
kind of losing control of the situation <laughs> and people are ganging up on him, I guess, for lack of a better term. But you, you talk about it, later on when he's running yes, down the road later on. Yeah. Correct. But back yeah. to the uh, car car dealership situation. It's a very good point. Um, but you know what else? The uh, there's part of the jury instruction that says you shouldn't think about what you would do in that situation. You have to look at was it reasonable under all the facts and circumstances that the defendant found well, himself that is, in? That is true. It's a it's a subjective thing in terms Correct. of what what's in his mind at that time. But that and brings what, us back. That well, brings let me us just back. Say why that's important. An important part of the instruction that is to address the fact that you know, like myself, I if I were in the situation where I was forced to use a weapon to defend myself, I would probably elect not to do so just because I do not like being around firearms as a result of all my exposure to it in the military. I know what it can do to people. I've seen it firsthand. I don't like it. Uh, so again, you know, that's, that's my personal view on the presence of firearms in a situation that can get out of control. And if I were on the jury, I should ignore that and look at, okay, he's 17 uh, there is a lot going on around him. I said, you know, I know you said you got to put that aside, but you really can't. Well, you know that's what's happening behind to, him. Does he I, know? I was just know? about to. I was just about to say is that I was at first looking at just the the interaction between Rosenbaum and Rittenhouse, yeah. um, ignoring the surrounding chaos. But as you as you uh, alluded to. Um, when you're looking at it from his perspective, you can ask, do I really have something to fear from this guy lunging at me? Cause I have a gun and, but um, I also put myself into this situation. Mm -hmm. I injected myself into this situation and in a situation I knew to be dangerous. Right. Right. So, do I, <laughs> I, I think, think a lot of people would further put, erodes. I think it further erodes his ability to say I reasonably feared for my life. Right. And it's one of many factors to consider. I mean, I think a reasonable person in that situation would suddenly feel, oh, gosh, I wish I didn't have this AR-15 in my hand right now. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> and, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you, that was my <clears throat> that's my viewing it. <clears throat> I'm a defense lawyer and that's you know, the way I'm wired and that's the way I think a lot of people are super duper pro gun, mm -hmm. super duper anti BLM and mm -hmm. anti protester. And that's why they showed up. Right. And so they looking at the exact same facts I just outlined would come to the exact contrary conclusion because they believe that um, these other people, the rioters, the Rosenbaums, etc. Mm -hmm. um, they're the ones that are um, just in the wrong and they had no reason to be there and, and Rittenhouse is a hero for showing up to help and that sort of thing. And, and that, and that of course has nothing to do with, you know, the actual facts. It's just the, it's the, yeah. it's their worldview and mindset and jurors are instructed to not leave their quote common sense at the courthouse door. True. Um, and they bring in their world, um, uh, experiences sure. and, and, and so I can easily see, look, 
jurors with that sort of mindset um, and experience and conservative perhaps views or uh, views on guns coming to the conclusion that he was absolutely and if you read the comments, if you watch Facebook Live, oh, I, I know, you know and there's the comments. I mean, yeah. of course, they're not really highly educated comments, but there's a lot of people just like, boom, self-defense, end of case. Yeah, there, there's been a lot of offensive comments, by the way, as during the streaming that's going on. It's an unfortunate consequence. I know that at least one of the news sources turned off uh, live commenting because it was getting so out of hand. Um but uh, let's add another layer to that. And again, I don't want to make Binger's argument for him, but I can see him saying to address that very issue that you just raised, that if our law or a combination of our laws um, permit people to, um, that, you know, guns in and of themselves are not illegal. Gun, the manufacture of guns is not illegal. People can possess them. Uh, lawfully under certain circumstances, although it was an unlawful situation here, it was that's a separate matter because he found himself in the middle of all this in possession of a deadly weapon. You know, if you want to find him guilty of that misdemeanor, fine. But the question now is when the fact that we have the Second Amendment right, and again, that's loaded loaded preface right there, but. If it's in order to um, potentially be used, when and where else would it be uh, more appropriate than in a situation like this? That That's an argument I can hear being. I can said. totally hear that argument. And, you know, yeah. something we haven't really touched on yet is after the Rosenbaum shooting, he takes off. Right. right. First of all, he doesn't try and help this guy. No. But of course. I think he felt like people were going to chase him, and he was right because they did. They did. They <laughs> so he ran north up on Sher- Sheridan Road, and the people who are you know familiar with Kenosha know where I'm talking about. It's right down by the courthouse. But he's he's running, and of course, this is where um, the National Guard and uh, a, month, a bunch of different law enforcement agencies had Bearcats out, and you know they were just armed to the teeth. The police were and. He runs, he's running towards them. And that's when he gets accosted by, and people that haven't even been identified, they call one guy the jump kick guy, um, mm-hmm. and another guy the yellow shirt guy, mm-hmm. um, who attacked him. I mean, one guy attacked him with a skateboard. Um, and, and, but when he shot, he was on the ground, um, looking up, yeah, looking up. And, and, this is after, and so could could you fashion an argument to say, all right, um, yes, they attacked him, but didn't they have a right to um, try and apprehend a guy well, they just saw kill somebody? Right, and and go back to our provocation discussion before. Did, was the Correct. first act of shooting a provocation to the subsequent you know, attacks on him, including being hit in the head with a skateboard, knocked to the ground, you know, all those things. Um, Hey, before we run out of time, because we are going to run out of time here, um, I want to talk briefly about the judge kicking the jury off the panel. Oh, yeah. Off the panel because of juror misconduct. Um, I'm sure you heard about this, but one of the jurors ends up making a 
or starts to make a joke about the Blake shooting, which was the whole premise of all these protests that were going on. Not a wise move, but and, go ahead. And I, I guess from what I could gather, the bailiff like cut him off and said, sir, sir, you know, not appropriate. Reports it to somebody, the judge, I guess. Judge calls the juror out and basically that kind of scolds him, but not really, you know, and um, it's like, well, that's inappropriate. And it's, it shows at least a, a presumption of bias and an so appearance. The, the appearance of well, bias. the joke was just so people are clear. Oh, I don't even know what it was, but oh, the, I do. Uh, so, at least I know what the, the reporting was. The joke was that um, uh, he said to the deputy that they only shot Jacob Blake seven times because they were in on a bullets. Oh, that's and and I, I know, and I don't oh, know. Okay, first of all, what, okay, so yeah, here's the thing though, John. This guy harbors this belief, and that kind of you know leads into whatever his mindset is in this whole situation. Well, this is this is one of the reasons that I was kind of both shocked and upset at the quickness with which this jury was picked, because yeah. there was yeah. no attempt to really like like they did in the Mod Arbery case down in Georgia, right. where they took. 10 days mm-hmm. to ferret out. Um, and that's a different story where they only have one black jury, by the way, but, um, oh, I know. <laughs> um, but we'll they, talk about that next. They, they, the lawyers didn't get enough time to examine, to really examine like um, <laughs> this sort of stuff, which would have come out with some more. Yeah. I don't know. Some more time, I guess. Well, dude, speaking of time, we're, we're out, out of time. time. All right, so uh, we'll continue this fascinating discussion with another week's worth of testimony and progress on the case to review. So we'll be back next week, as you can hear us, every single Saturday from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock, right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend. weekend.